Welcome to the Arts Report for May 7th, 2014. Tonight on the show, we have the world-famous conductor Jonathan Darlington to talk about Vancouver Opera's production of Don Carlo. Christine Kim will be here to tell us about John Paul Sartre's play No Exit, and will tell you about Brief Encounters and play an interview with queer poet Floyd B.B., done by former Arts Report host Megan Thomas. And then stay tuned at 6 p.m. for UBC Arts On Air. Hi, everybody. Back from a hiatus. I really enjoyed my trip to historic Halifax, and I just played Joel Plaskett. Maybe we should just go home from his album Down at the Kyber and actually walked by the Kyber, famous club in Halifax. I really enjoyed that. Met Romeo Dallaire again and networked with some other really cool people. So, yeah, there's a world outside of Vancouver, and I rarely see it, but it was really exciting. Um, so I'm just going to kind of jump right into the show. We're going to try to get Jonathan Darlington on the phone, and I've talked about him on the show before. Um, he's a conductor and the music director of the Vancouver Opera, among many other things. He was last here to um, do Tosca, a wonderful opera by Puccini in the fall. So I'm just going to play a piece by Puccini um, called Visi d'Art, and that's uh, Aria. We'll see if we can get him on the phone, and then we'll talk to him about the, uh, uh, the production Vancouver opera Don Carlo. It actually opened on Saturday, May 3rd, but I'm going tomorrow night, so I'm very excited. So hang tight, and we'll see what happens. Thank you. 
Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report. Okay, the moon's void, of course. And I couldn't reach Jonathan Darlington. So hopefully he is there out there. I've left a message. And um, hopefully he will call back. If not, I will talk about him anyway and talk about Don Carlo. But for now, how about I do something a bit different and see what happens. Maybe I'll talk about the Doxa Film Festival. Uh, I went last night documentary film festival started may 2nd and goes on till may 11th um so yeah great documentaries fantastic the opening one was called varunga and people were talking about it last night um and saying they were crying and it's about um the eastern congo and a unesco world heritage site so wonderfully biodiverse place with antelope elephants, lions, hippos, and wild mountain gorillas, but it's really endangered, and human corruption and greed threaten destruction and death, so park rangers try to protect them, but poachers come on, um, and rebel groups um, come in and hurt the animals and and tear up the land, um, so apparently it was really moving film, and having been exposed to Romeo Dallaire again, I know that uh, they have terrible problems in the Congo, so that's really sad. So that was a good one. I think it's over. There was another good one uh, I looked at and makes me laugh. Sunday, May 11th at 8 p.m., a brony tale. Now, I've heard a little bit about bronies, but I don't really know. They're guys that like My Little Pony. You know, my four-year-old niece likes My Little Pony. So they they have social get-togethers and wear costumes, uh, positivity, positivity and friendship. So, wow. Um yeah it's just making me laugh reading it but you know what if they want to be bronies who am I to stand in their way there's just a picture of this happy looking guy in a candy colored wig uh, in the program so definitely see it another one that looks good and again I uh oh you can see it tonight oh no it's over Uh, web junkie about internet addiction looks really fascinating um Parents are worried about their kids' immersion in an online universe. This is actually set in China, where internet addiction is a huge problem. Um, so they, the generational divide is acted out in therapy sessions. So these parents put their kids in therapy at an internet detox center outside of Beijing. And it sounds like quite an intensive boot camp. And some of the kids break away and go back to the internet cafe. Um, but... Uh, it's a real problem, internet addiction. Haven't we all felt it? And hopefully we would never have to go to a detox center to get away from the internet. But these kids are spending all their waking hours online, going without food, sleep, or even going to the bathroom and then sort of bragging to each other about, you know, how long they go without food and sleep. What other ones did I... some kind of other ones dealing with the internet which are interesting and they're talking about a mediated reality and isn't that so true on the internet um that you know it is what you make it you know reality and we lose touch with just basic things that give us more full sources of information about people like eye contact and body language so I'm not actually that big on the internet although I'm on it all the time the one I saw last night was really good and I had a great night out with Brenda the station manager um, and I were sponsoring it so I got to go up on the stage and introduce um, the movie and and CITR and that was really exciting um, even though it was a sparse audience but uh, it, was, it was about a band that I've never heard of called The Silver Mount Zion Memorial Orchestra. And they're kind of like a protest folk neoclassical band, like really intense, kind of heavy, gothy violins. And one of the, a few of the members, uh, as Efren Menek, is also in Godspeed, You Black Emperor. So it's about their kind of life together. They've been on the road and they're like hippies. You know, they've always been like into having no money and squatting and do it yourself and and not wanting to earn money or take money from their fans. But um, then he and his girlfriend, sort of the lead singer, and his girlfriend who plays in the band have a kid. And so it's about how they have to adjust to having a kid and how that works with being on the road all the time. It's sort of this window into what life of a professional touring musician is like and some of the challenges especially as they start to feel the pull right of 
getting older and adult responsibilities and you know the other people in the band that are like you know in their mid 30s they you know they don't have kids so it, it doesn't have an impact on them but you see the strain uh, on this couple raising their kid but you know and so you do feel for them because really it's about people caught in in a, a kind of crystal, crystallized state where they can't they kind of want to move but they don't really want to and they feel guilt about their child um so you do feel for them at the same time it's like you don't feel that bad for them like like they're on the tour bus the kid actually seems fine but the way they kind of edit it it makes it seem like the child's having a terrible problem with being on tour and it's just the cutest little kid um but you know I was reflecting like everywhere parents have um you know, difficulties raising kids because they're so demanding. It really takes two full-time adults plus a few extra helpers um, to raise kids, like no matter whether you're working full-time or not. Um, and so, you know, and then they're like, what if we have to get jobs? And I was like, well, gee, you know, <laughs> lots of us have to get jobs, right? And yet at the same time, they felt guilt because they knew how lucky they were to kind of do what they want in music and then struggling with needing more money but not wanting to charge more. I think the thing that struck me the most was the gender differences. So, you know, he got to continue touring. She was feeling pressure from the band, like maybe they wanted her to quit and be a full-time, you know, and stay home with the baby. In one case, you know, she did stay home with the baby and they show her really depressed and struggling on her own and then reflecting with some other female musicians, including Julie Doiron um, from the Maritimes, about, you know, women in music either not being moms or it just being impossible to be moms and be a professional touring musician. It was actually really sad. I didn't know this. Julie Doiron, um, she actually lost custody of her kids because of her touring schedule. I mean, I don't know what the full story is, but uh, yeah. But the movie was really beautifully done, I think. Um, and so, yeah. Oh, my God. He's not going to call Jonathan Darlington. <laughs> it's okay. I'm fine. Um, but anyways, go see the movie. And I think I'm going to play a bit of Mount Zion Memorial Orchestra. I really liked it. And it definitely is, like, like kind of dark colors and really great road footage, really great club footage. And you kind of get you know, how exciting it is to be on tour, to kind of be living this free life. At the same time, you kind of get the idea of like the grind, you know, like dragging the equipment in and out, kind of the, the crappy food backstage and, and uh, you know, so it was, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it, it was thought provoking for me, you know, especially about the gender differences stuff. So, you know, there's always great stuff at DOXA. Last year, I really enjoyed it as well. So it's what, the 7th today? It's on to the 11th. Lots of great films. Definitely check it out at www.doxafestival.ca. So let's see if we can find something to play of Silver Mount Zion. Uh, there is a light? I don't know. How about that? Let's see. Well, it's 15 minutes long. You know, it's kind of... We won't play it that long. So stay tuned for the Arts Report. We've got a lot more coming up. Thanks.
ponies and the men who love them with a special spotlight program secrets and lies that examines the art of deception the festival is happening may 2nd to 11th for more information go to www.doxafestival spelled d-o-x-a festival.ca what are you doing saturday may 24th if you're looking for one of the most fascinating, entertaining, and intellectually stimulating days of the year, come to the Vancouver campus for UBC's Alumni Weekend. General admission, including entry to all UBC gardens and museums, is free. CITR will be there too. For a full schedule of events, go to alumni.ubc.ca. Proudly sponsored by Cowell Auto Group and CITR. Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. This is Sarah Lapsley calling from, <laughs> calling from, no one's calling, actually, that's the problem. Um, but that's okay, I am fine, I totally am fine. Um, maybe it was too good to be true anyways. Um, and any, <laughs> it's okay. Okay, I'm gonna talk about brief encounters. And I'm just going to lodge a complaint before I start and say it's one of these super fancy websites that seem to be more and more common. Like people really want to have a super beautiful fancy website. Unfortunately, they kind of forget that having the information clear and quick and easily accessible is the point of websites. So I'm on the shows page here and it's just pictures of shows and you don't, you have to click on one and then figure out what it is and where it is. It's very difficult. So I'm just going to um, direct you to the Brief Encounters page. It's www.briefencounters.ca. Um, and you can navigate the website. I mean, it is very pretty to find out when everything is 
It starts tomorrow night, May 8th to 10th, actually. And so I don't know how many shows, 10 artists, and they basically pair them up. It wasn't that long ago that we did, there was another Brief Encounters. I hope it wasn't a year ago because it seems um, like that would be frightening if a year passed that quickly. So what, what Brief Encounters does is they they pair up artists who don't know each other and are from different disciplines. So a comedian and a ballet dancer a poet and a punk cellist, a sculptor and a puppeteer. They meet two weeks before the show. They've never worked together. And then they have to create a new collaborative work. So it's always a surprise. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I've never been. I can't say. Um, But it's very popular. People like it. So uh, if you're into arts and checking out new experimental work, that's kind of out of the box, then I definitely suggest it. Now, we really miss Megan Thomas. She was the arts director and the co-host, and uh, she's like a superstar of getting stuff done and publicizing things, and, uh, you know, I really can't live up to that. But she's been kind enough to send me an interview that she did with a queer gender-fluid poet who's coming up uh, in Vancouver um, to, I think she's going to talk about her work with Brief Encounters. So... uh, This is Floyd VB, the poet, and here's Megan's interview with her. Um, So here we go. Let's hope it all works out. Stay tuned from the Arts Report. I'm here at the home of Floyd Van Vee, a Vancouver slam poet, and we are going to talk a little bit about the upcoming show, Brief Encounters, May 8th to 10th, as well as some of the other things that have been going on in Floyd's world. Uh, Floyd, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself as a poet? I'm Floyd. I do performance poetry. I started at the Poetry Slam and have then done other artistic projects with people. I write about gender and sexuality and funny, weird love poems. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been writing poetry since I guess I was about... 12, but up until age 16, it was horrid teen angst poetry. Um, And then I guess when I was 16, and I'm 19 now, so three years, that makes sense, is how long I've been performing. There was a slam poetry club at my school, and that's how I started out with that. I saw you first at Versus Festival in 2013. You were a performer at the Queer Arts Festival in 2013. Uh, You were Daily Extra's uh, top 30, under 30. So it's been kind of like a remarkable climb for three years. Tell me what it's like to perform in these festival environments. It's really cool. With Versus and the and the Victoria Spoken Word Festival, neither of them were like competitive festivals. I've also gone to a couple poetry festivals this year that were competitive because I was on the slam poetry team in Vancouver. And the non-competitive festivals and just seeing uh, collaborations and collaborating myself and stuff has been awesome. And I like it more than the, the slam setup of the, the competition and just kind of head-to-head poetry thing. Can you elaborate a little bit about what SLAM is for the uninitiated and how you approach it? Uh, SLAM is a competition of spoken word, spoken word in a competition context. Usually there will be someone who you have like three minutes and ten seconds to, to do a poem and there's no costumes or props or musical accompaniment or really any collaboration unless you're in a team tournament. You just perform your poem, and it's rated by five random judges uh, selected from the audience, and then someone wins, and it's kind of awful assigning numbers to poetry. So I like to approach it from a way where I'm kind of... I try to do it more for myself than for the audience, which is hard to do because the communities are so audience-based and Mm -hmm. so competition-based that that's hard to deal with sometimes, which is why I'm glad for opportunities like the Victoria Spoken Word Festival. So do you think you maybe will be moving away from SLAM? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I definitely have been moving away from it a bit already, which is both disappointing and also good for me, I think. It's still nice to go and participate sometimes, though. Doing SLAM in different cities. Um, thoughts or comparisons about Vancouver as a place for spoken word? Mm. In Vancouver, we kind of embrace the weird a lot more, and I think Victoria definitely embraces the weird a lot more, too. Whereas when I went and competed in, like, Boston and Montreal, there were there were people who definitely adhered to this really hyper-competitive thing, which I hear is more of an East Coast 
slam thing, but I'm not I'm not certain if that's accurate or not. Do you have any favorite poets right now that are really inspiring you? I'm very bad at answering that question. I feel like most spoken word poets have people they really, really, really look up to and stuff. And I mean, I certainly do. There are people in my community and stuff I really, really look up to. But I'm not the kind of person to spend hours looking at YouTube videos of other spoken word poets. Um, a lot of people do that. R.C. Wislowski in, in the Vancouver community is someone I really, really look up, look up to, like in his style and also just the way he approaches the scene and the community and stuff and how he's always like open to learning and trying new things and I think he's just brilliant I feel like I'm so influenced by like even just pop media and tv shows and like nerd culture and mm -hmm. stuff that a singular artist in some form is really hard to point at well what are you loving right now in pop culture then I'm watching Hannibal obviously <laughs> Hannibal's perfect in oh every way it's so good it's so good dark dark humor though mm -hmm. like the i remember the the fan base when the first season was out was um calling it a sitcom for horrible people mm -hmm. and i think that's somewhat accurate still just subtly imply cannibalism all the time so tell me about what the weird means to you i've always i guess been someone who has been drawn to weirdness a lot more you know as a kid and stuff that is just a way to be bullied and i've always <laughs> just dealing with bullying and stuff but i always never wanted to not be weird because it was very important and my whole family's bizarre so it was just like I don't know how to do that other thing I'm just going to be aggressively weird <laughs> I think that's important to be a distinct voice as an artist as well is to be aggressively weird and aggressively different and try to do even aggressively different from your past work and stuff it's a it's a way to keep moving forward and try different things and also just there's so many fun aesthetics that you can do with weird We've got a lot of decapitated limbs and stuff in our home. So you're comfortable with the dark a little bit as well. I mean, a Hannibal lover kind of has to be, obviously. Yeah, yeah. dark is good. Mm -hmm. Dark is... When your brain tends to dwell on the dark, it's easier to make it fun. Mm -hmm. I feel like the to play with, I guess, dark and light and weird is interesting because it, you can look at things in a different light. Like, you can take a fluffy love poem and then make it just bizarre and weird and dark, and then all of a sudden it's something new and interesting to listen to. Or you can talk about gender, which a lot of people may think of being being trans or being non-binary as an arduous task, a distressing, sad, tragic thing in your life, or, and you can turn it around and make it empowering and weird and bizarre and fun. And yeah, I think playing with those perceptions and trying to look at things in different lights that way is uh it's it's fun and it's also makes old subject matter interesting to listen to mm -hmm. now uh, speaking of gender um you know you i know that you've had a really interesting journey um with uh, the role that gender has played in your life. Can you talk about what the concept of gender fluidity and, and flexibility means to you? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. I spend most of my time thinking about gender and my own gender. It means a lot. It, it means a specific kind of freedom uh, from, you know, gender roles that, that society generally likes to impose that's really obnoxious and you know, the patriarchy, which also totally plays into slam poetry and stuff, how people are perceived in a, like an aggressive masculine way or like, and people, how people are scored, which is another obnoxious thing about slam. Um, and I guess being non-binary is just a way to remove myself from those. It's not just a way to remove myself. It's also a, it's something I very strongly identify with, but I'm glad that I'm non-binary and it's empowering for me because I get to move away from what is expected of me if I identified as masculine or feminine and I don't identify with either of those things. And, and it's also just so fun to think about. Like I try to experiment with fun ways to visualize my gender identity and, and it's all very complicated mm -hmm. and I think about it a lot. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're thinking about the idea of the weird and of the fluid, the way you're talking about it lends towards the idea of self-determination. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That's why I really like the non-binary movement, I guess, is that there are there are trans people who are very, very binary and very much don't agree with gender fluidity and non-binary people. And I don't understand that because 
when you are playing with your gender already, you have this opportunity to think critically about gender roles and think critically about about your own gender and where you fit into these kind of systems of societal oppression. And so, yeah, it is very much about self-autonomy and and creating your own self away from what is expected of you because that's boring. Give us a little insight into your process. Can you give us a little insight into the life of a poem in development um, via Floyd Van Beek? <laughs> it really, really, really depends on the poem. I've had poems that I, you know, drink three cups of coffee and I'm like, oh, I need to write this thing right now. It's happening. And then it's basically in its final form, like the only a few last tweaks will happen before I perform it. And then other times there's poems that I want to write that I I know the premise of the poem and I will keep trying to write it and there'll be drafts and drafts and then it'll take months and months to write. And then there are poems where I'm like, eh, this is a piece that I have and this is that a piece that I have. I'll find a way to make them into something that I want to perform, I guess, which end up also being good poems sometimes too. And it, I don't really have a process. Sometimes things just happen and sometimes they don't. We've talked about um, your interest in gender are there, and the weird. Are there any particular subjects or ideas that you're working on right now that you can tell us about? I definitely, a lot of my work in writing and also like visual art right now kind of has to do with uh, the body and stuff and the weirdness of the body and which also always ties in with gender. Um, I guess that's something that I've been focusing on. What is it about the body that you find weirdest? I think how people perceive it. Uh, I think that if you really look at the body, they're all really bizarre and there are so many weird shapes in the body and it's all sort of put together. And humans are just sort of all put together, higgledy-piggledy. We're, <laughs> we're not really... The way we're built doesn't really make any sense. Um, but we all perceive the human form to be one way and there's a normal way for the human form to be put together when really, really we're all just a bizarre set of shapes. Mm-hmm. Do you, have a, do you have a favorite body part? Uh, spines are really interesting, and I think that ribs are interesting, and also tummies are really interesting, and uh, like little bits of skin around the armpits are interesting. <laughs> Those little like things that you, you maybe don't think of. I mean, there's a lot of focus on faces and genitals and, and, all, and, and the display parts of our body that, you know, sometimes these little fun parts get missed. Mm-hmm. One of your next projects coming up uh, is Brief Encounters, which mm-hmm. is uh, where two artists that are very, have very different disciplines are paired together to create something new and unique. Um, in two weeks, have you ever have you ever had a project like that where it had that kind of urgency? I've had some like intensive collaboration experiences before. Uh, I was part of the Ignite Mentorship Program, and we what, the first thing that we did was we had two days to get into groups and collaborate and make this sort of site-specific theater thing, which was really intense. And then in Victoria, we did a similar thing. We had to make, like, um, an hour, hour-and-a-half-long show in, like, five hours and have it all put together in a certain way. And, like, but I'm excited to have almost, like still a short amount of time but a longer period of time because I think that that'll definitely change the quality of the work and the way that we can put that work together and I'm really really excited about Brief Encounters actually. Mm -hmm. Having talked about the myriad of ways that you sometimes approach a piece and having experience with these kinds of intensive collaborations does that bring out anything noticeably different or unique in, in the work that you produce like how does that type of process affect your work? I think it gives me more parameters, which makes it easier for me to write, like, or or perform or whatever I may be doing. Um, having restrictions instead of just like a, a a blank page makes it easier to to come up with something, and that's it's really exciting to have that opportunity to like just collaborate. Right, I don't want to like have an existing piece and then like have someone else have an existing piece and find a way to marry that. That's cool sometimes, but I want to just like create something new with someone and I'm really excited about that. Your official partner who you've not yet met is Shizuka Kai and she's a local puppeteer and set designer. Do you have any puppetry experience if it comes to either working with or even just enjoying as a viewer? Well, I love puppets. I love the Muppets for starters 
uh, in Victoria, actually, we got to do a puppetry workshop with someone who um, he worked on Fraggle Rock. Um, yeah. And then we did a collaboration with some puppeteers that night and had to make a show that night as well with, yeah, with some puppeteers who did different styles of puppetry and stuff. It was really, really cool. Um, so do you have, do you have any ideas about, um, the type of subjects or the type of approach that you, do you have something in your head that's already forming, forming, even though you haven't actually no idea. (laughs) And I don't really want to have an idea until I until I meet up with with Shizuka. Mm-hmm. You have worked with David Bloom several times. He's a guest programmer for Brief Encounters. Give us a little insight on on Mister Bloom. He's like a weirdo in a in a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I in feel way you love. yeah. I feel like David and I are uh, very well matched in the weird department. Now, um, if you were a Muppet, which Muppet would you be? Andy Mouth. <laughs> Probably. I like animal. <laughs> a lot. Wow, that was a great interview by Megan Thomas of, of Floyd Van Beek, who's going to be appearing at Brief Encounters with a puppeteer. So, yeah, no, Megan, awesome. That is great uh, to hear what Floyd Van Beek had to say. And I was laughing like when you're talking about favorite body parts. Tummies? No, definitely not. But I actually had a heart test as like an echocardiogram and ultrasound. So now the heart is my favorite body part because I really saw one and it's a real thing pumping away all day. It has these little valves. It makes swooshing sounds. So I'm like totally heart smart. I haven't had like anything fatty or sugary since I saw my heart on a screen. It's all like vegetables and salmon. Um, Favorite Muppet? I don't know. It. Uh, I did one of those quizzes, and I was not Sharpling and Worcester. Who are, oh, I'll have to Google it. You know, the two old guys that sit in the balcony. That was who I was. Um, so, yes, thank you, Megan. Brief Encounters starts tomorrow night, and it's going to be, I think, really good. Uh, and it runs till May 10th. So check out the website, briefencounters.ca. If you navigate around, you will find out uh, the times and places. And it's at, oh, it's at Gilton Company downtown. It's a great little club downtown. It looks like a cavern, kind of like where the Beatles played, Stone, um, and a great place to see shows. So definitely check that out. So why don't we talk about Jonathan Darlington, um, and then we're going to have arts reporter Christine Kim on to talk about a great play by Jean-Paul Sartre called No Exit. So Jonathan Darlington, I actually feel really guilty uh, to bug him for an interview because I should have asked him like weeks ago, but I was in Halifax and totally caught up with that and uh, just emailed him a few days ago. He agreed, but obviously there's been some kind of mix up. And But from my exchanges with him, uh, he's a lovely, very diligent, kind person. So there's been a mix up and you know, I feel badly and, and, you know, I just feel badly for inconveniencing him. Uh, but I, you know, talked about him on the show because I was just struck by him, um, seeing him in, on videos. I met him in person on the ferry, just ran into him. Uh, and he's an incredibly accomplished conductor, like one of the most famous and accomplished in the world. He conducts operas all over the world. He lives in France. Um, and comes to Vancouver. I'm not exactly sure why he graces us uh, in Vancouver, although it is a beautiful day. So maybe that's why. Um, And just knowing a bit about classical music, I can't imagine the kind of mastery it takes to read a giant orchestral piece of music where you're basically reading all the lines of music and bringing in all the instruments. So I guess, you know, I was going to ask him a lot about the process of conducting, like keeping the rhythm, I guess, as part of it, bringing people in and out, creating the dynamics of the orchestra. So it's kind of this meta process, I guess, about, um, you know, keeping everything going rather than playing an individual part. Um, so, and he accidentally became a conductor. He talks about it. Uh, his, uh, you know, he studied music, but then he was kind of running around in the Paris scene as a piano player, kind of filling in here and there, and he just kind of got asked. 
I guess, one day and as a fill-in, and it just grew from there. Um, and he's spectacular to see in person, really, uh, when he's up there with his baton. He's just so dynamic and likable, and just from what I've seen and heard from other people, how gracious he is. And so definitely check out his website. He's got a great website, jonathan-darlington.com, and he's from Lapworth, England. So he's got great stories, and he talks about uh, batons on there, which I thought was great. So it's an instrument. The conductor's instrument is a baton, and you can get ones made from ivory or wood, fiberglass, or carbon. They're different sizes. Um, you have to buy them at specialized shops. For some reason, I found that so interesting. So he sometimes uses a baton, um, but when he does romantic music, he doesn't use a baton. He just uses his hands. He's like a dancer. Like when you see him in the pit, he just moves around like a graceful dancer. Um, and he tells a funny story in his website. Um, you know, the baton has become smaller over time. Originally in the 17th century, they conducted by beating the rhythm of the music with a giant staff. And actually, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lully, a court composer of Louis the Fourteenth, he died after accidentally smashing his big toe with the giant conducting staff and died from a sepsis or a toxic sort of infection. So that's cool. Check out his website. And I've been excited all year for Don Carlo. So it's a Giuseppe Verdi opera. It's the first time Vancouver Opera has put it on in 40 years. And it is the magnificent drama of a king's brutal power and a son's brash rebellion. Um, what was the last one I saw there? It wasn't Tosca. It was Don Juan. And Don Juan was kind of pared down good it's kind of pared down now i think this one is going to be very spectacular big deal show um and quite a vibrant score so i'm going tomorrow night with my friend alicia from work yay alicia um she loves opera and it's been nice to hook up with her because i often have tickets for things and and she likes to go with me so the story is a french princess elizabeth de valois i'm interested in in uh 16th century France she's given in marriage to Spain's King Philip the king's son Carlo is shattered for he is in love with her uh, so it's sort of a story about authority and anger and betrayal and uh, his you know I guess to some extent politics um, and a ghostly friar rescues Car Carlo from the wrath of church and state so I think it's going to be great music three hours and five minutes of opera although they do give us an intermission so that's nice so what am I going to do right now? Well, sorry, Jonathan Darlington. That's too bad. But uh, it was fun emailing with him and setting up the interview. So I'm going to have Christine Kim on. First, we're going to play some public service announcements. And we'll be right back with Christine Kim. Do you have an approaching test or exam and need help studying? Well, it's time to prepare yourself. The Study Van, www.studyvan.com, is a 100% free website dedicated to helping you achieve excellence. MCAT, History, Chemistry, French, Math, Biology, The Study Van covers it all. Tools are provided so you can create your own study group and do what you need to do. ACR exam. The Study Van will help you help yourself. Give it a shot. You have nothing to lose, as once again, it is a 100% free studying resource. So remember, when you need to study, go to the study barn, www.studybarn.com. Hempology 101 is a student-run organization here to educate the public about the benefits of hemp and cannabis. Fast fact! Hemp is a renewable, sustainable source of food and fiber. Fast fact! Your body contains anandamide, which is part of the same family of substances as THC. To learn more, look us up on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash Hempology 101 UBC. Or come to one of our great events. And don't forget, legalization through education. We're back on CITR 101.9 FM. You're listening to The Arts Report. I'm your host for tonight, your disappointed host for tonight, Sarah Lapsley. And I'm here with the lovely arts reporter, Christine Kim. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, <laughs> it's a pleasure. And I'm so excited. You're going to tell us about a cool play. And I was laughing because, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre is like a, 
existentialist, mm-hmm. right? And I was thinking no exit is like the ultimate kind of existentialist <laughs> title. Like just forget about it, right? Exactly. There's no point. There's no hope. There's no meaning. Mm. So tell us about the play. Yeah. So as you guys know, yesterday evening, I went to go see the play, uh, No Exit. It's directed by Tanya Mativanan. It's a French play by, as you said, Jean-Paul Sartre. And just to give our listeners a brief overview of the premise of the play, there are three characters that are stuck together in a room. This seemingly ordinary setting is actually hell, or aka where bad people go after they die. Uh, The plot unfolds as each character comes to terms with the others, and honestly, when I was watching this, I was incredibly blown away by how slowly but surely the characters, the plot, and the understanding of their emotional pain became just so strikingly clear. I mean, I honestly walked into this play thinking I would be in for a philosophical and high-minded play I would need to watch a couple of times over um, just to understand the plot remotely. Um, But as I was watching it, um, I was definitely blown away by how funny and conversationally appealing the lines of the play were acted and directed. Um, I came to terms with each character and their unique vice in a way that did not require a specifically philosophical background or understanding of existentialism. And so I would definitely recommend this play for those people who want a play that will leave you thinking, but also keep you interested throughout. However, enough about uh, my thoughts. I actually interviewed director Tanya and actor Jordan Kerbs, who played Inez, and Harrison McDonald, who played Credo. Um, so while I cannot play the entire interview for reasons of time and the fact that the recorder actually died out near the end of our interview, the bits that I do have really speak to how much genuine passion the cast had for this play in presenting the production. Um, It was definitely incredible getting to talk with each person, just hearing how much personal thought they've put into their roles. Um, And at the same time, I could see how well they mesh together as a team. In fact, while I was actually interviewing Harrison, um, I asked him about one of the one of his favorite slash funniest memories of being in the production. And he said that at one point him and his actors just like wrapped out the the lines of the play for fun and Tanya too um, as will be evident by the uh, interview that we play loved working with the with the cast so I think their cohesiveness definitely helped put on the amazing show that it was Um, so without further ado here's the interview So I'm with the director and the actors uh, from No Exit. Maybe um, I could get you to introduce yourself first. Uh, Yeah, I'm Tanya. I'm the director and producer of No Exit. So for yourself, what was an aspect um, of the original rendition of Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit that you really wanted to highlight with this piece? Um, Well, for me, it's a very, very character-driven piece. There's no real need for tech or, you know, set or costumes is very minimalistic and I really, really like um, focusing on character above all because I think sometimes, you know, story and character development and just introspection can get lost when in a really big production. So Mm -hmm. uh, this was very interesting. And the last play I did was sort of slightly more technologically complex. I wanted to do something simple. That's really awesome. So when you were thinking of directing this piece, what did you think uh, was going to be one of the toughest things um, about this piece to recreate or, you know, deal with? Um, Well, just the fact that there's no real plot to it. It's basically three characters sort of thrown together in a room and it's how they interact with one another. There's no real sort of beginning and ending. There's no, you know, story development in that sense it's all about the character so that's very difficult and the language is not particularly conversational either it's very much um his philosophies intertwined (laughs) with the dialogue so you know that can be a challenge (laughs) to get across so for the audience members what's one thing you really hope that when they come out of the play that they'll be thinking or that they'll be i guess taking from the play well, um, one of the things that's, uh, one of the motifs almost that's really big in the play is mirrors. And there's a lack of mirrors in the play, so the characters are sort of mirrors for each other. But I think something I want the audience to realize, they're also mirrors for us. And that um, 70 years ago, you know, this was written 
almost to the year, 70 years ago, um, I think the issues and and problems that he highlights are still relevant today. And I guess thinking about why they're still relevant and why they still resonate. That's really interesting. And as I was looking at the play, it also explained that the setting was actually hell mm -hmm. and his, I guess, portrayal of what true hell is. Um, what do you think so significant and so, I guess, um, intriguing about this idea of hell and making the play setting the underworld? Well, I think it's the fact that hell doesn't correspond at all to the sort of hell that pervades our, you know, art and literature. There's no fires, no brimstone, there are no sort of little imps running around. It's just a room, um, a sort of bizarre-looking room, but it's a room, and it's very secular as well. There's no real mention of the devil or Satan or, or even God. I mean. The word God comes up, but it's mostly in swear form, like, oh my God. <laughs> but there's no actual mention of that. So that was very interesting is what is his real idea of hell? I don't think it's a particular sort of um, Christian or even pagan feel to it. It's just situational. <laughs> and I guess as a final question, um, what did you just enjoy most about directing this play and yeah. Honestly, um, for this particular play, the thing I enjoyed most was just the people. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I've 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 play where plays where it's you know sometimes can be a little bit of a contentious <laughs> relationship, but just you know I have the best crew, you know, with really talented designers, and these guys were really really easy to work with as well. And it's all that's always great when you enjoy going to rehearsal and when you come out with a positive experience. Mm. That's great. Thank you. All right. Um, so if you could just introduce yourself and your character and role in the play. Okay. I am Jordan Kerbs, and I am playing Inez Serrano. Okay. Um, can you explain a little bit about Inez and what, she, what her character is in the play? Well, Inez is um, a lesbian in the 1940s, and that's a lot right there. So a lot of the struggles that happen for women during this time period. Um, she is a strong, strong woman. And she is smart and wants her voice to be heard. That's very important to her. <laughs> and she's really seeking love. What aspect of this character did you most like resonate with that really you felt like you could really connect to? Um, I, <laughs> I feel like I have a pretty strong voice and I feel when it comes to, um, a lot of times women, we feel like it's hard to talk with men. Um, but that is where I relate with Inez very much. Uh, she is not afraid to voice what she feels and especially towards men. And, um, she not only says her opinion, but she says it with wit and it slices the other character, the other only male char character in the play. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess as a play, the play as a whole, mm -hmm. um, what did you enjoy most, what unique aspects of the play did you enjoy most? Well, as Tanya was talking about, I really like the aspect of mirrors, and I really like um, how um, the idea that our identity is formed by the opinions of others, and Inez is really living in that world. Her, every opinion that has had, that people have had of her in her life, it's like stuck to her body and her face and everything, you know, like she lives with that. She can't function without knowing, like she needs to have that bitterness the society has given her. It, it's like her ammo and her gas. And also the idea of the language. <laughs> John Falsat, he has this interesting thing with language he does. Um, we will say the same thing probably three times, but we will say it very differently. And every time we say our lines, like each one, has a completely different meaning and it's literally like a little change in the words just a little mm -hmm. and you're just like you're saying something completely different so in terms of that how do you think the audience will um, I guess understand that kind of language and that kind of unique um, 
vocaling of someone's emotions and thoughts in that manner. Yeah. Well, you know, like Shakespeare and like Jacobian, like we're really in Jacobian. We're really in the, um, we, we love language and you can just really get lost in the beauty of language in general. And I think that this has a more of a modern touch to it because it is a lot later. Um, and I think that that for an audience, you can really, you just kind of fall into it and you're really wanting to know what's going to happen in this world. And we're so invested in our, in our, in our objectives and what we want is so intense and always like, honestly, it's, it's like on fire all the time in the play and very, uh, very obvious to the audience. I think, and I think that keeps them on their edge and they want to know what's going to happen. What's going to be next. Mm. Awesome. Um, so I guess as a final question, um, as you know, the setting of the play is hell and the underworld. Um, again, what aspect of hell and this concept of where you go after you die is so resounding and why do you think, um, Sartre picked this setting, um, hell to be in the play? Yeah, to me, I just don't feel like it's, it's, like she says, like, there's nothing there. There's nothing burning, you know, you're not roasting over the flames. And the idea is that us, the people, (laughs) we're each other's hell. And that is a very interesting concept because I think as human beings, we don't really ever think about that. How when we're really irritated, a lot of times we're irritated with other people. And it's an interesting reflection, going back to the mirror idea, of how society is with us and how we see ourselves in society. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, to start off with uh, your name and the name of the character that you're playing. My name is Harrison McDonald and I'll be playing Vincent Crudeau. Okay, and could you just give us a brief overview about the character and his role within No Exit? Well, Crudeau is a journalist and writer, and in the uh, in the play, he is basically a guy who is extremely insecure, but is trying desperately to hide that insecurity from everyone else in the situation. Hmm. And what aspect of the play, I mean the character, did you resonate with most or connect with most? I think it was his mix of kind of this earnestness and this desire for uh, peace and validation, but also this cynical sort of self-loathing undertone that he had. I think for me, I'm constantly struggling with trying to be a positive person and trying to work things out, but then also having that darker side that tells me... I'm not sort of good enough or, you know, like the dark side that allows you to sort of believe all the bad things, you know, that others might tell you. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. So that was the interview with director Tanya and actors Jordan Curves and Harrison McDonald. Um, so the play No Exit will be at Studio 16 um, every night at 8 p.m. up until Saturday. Tickets are $15, um, but $10 if you're a student. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Christine. No problem. That was great to hear about the play. Good interview. Um, And you know what? We're out of time, but I want you to stay tuned for UBC Arts on Air coming up next. Um, And so, yeah, I can't say it was my most favorite show, but it wasn't the worst show ever. Um, So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. So next week we have filmmakers and a cast member from the new film Spaces and Reservations. I think it's kind of a horror thriller. So looking forward to that. Tune in and turn on next week with me. I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley, and I'm just going to play a song as we go out. And it's by a really cool band, St. Lulu. So these are beautiful, identical twins from Sweden, and they're the daughters of one of my favorite musicians, Steve Kilby, the front man of the 80s band The Church. And this song is actually a tame Impala cover, And it's called It Feels Like We Only Go Backwards. So stay tuned on CITR 101.9 FM.
101. Right here on News 101. What motivated you to become a candidate in the provincial election? The media portrayal of last week's protest that resulted in polarizing images of black-clad activists taking to the streets. He was just explaining to us the reason why they wanted to show this film on campus. The official stance is that we are for the Olympics. News 101 reporter Brad Pepping was there. By discriminating against homeless people in Vancouver, there's a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people as well as people with disabilities. I was pretty outraged. I mean, it is outrageous. In-depth coverage from an alternative perspective. News 101 is Vancouver's only live, volunteer-produced student and community newscast, bringing you local, national, and international news from an alternative perspective. Tune in Mondays and Fridays at 5 p.m. right here on CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. Live streaming and podcasts are available online at citr.ca. From CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, this is UBC Arts on Air. I'm your host, Ira Nadell. Each week, we feature the ideas and stories of students and staff within the Faculty of Arts at the University of British Columbia. Tonight, Alessandra Nakarato, a first-year student in the MFA program and an accomplished spoken word.